no, it's not. <laughs> it's not new. Um, so uh, I'll skip the textbook definition because I'm sure a lot of folks can just Google that and come to some kind of high level conclusion, which is like, okay, well, it's basic. Like if users, whether they be your end users um, in a business context or they're your consumers who are using your product, that growth will be reflected in your revenue and also in guiding your product direction and hence what people call product-led growth. And why is it so popular now? I think a lot of it is actually driven by the fast iterations of technology. Hey everyone, George Soto here and you're watching the Reprise Product-Led Revenue Podcast. Today I'm joined by Mona Zhao who is the product manager at Facebook for a variety of different products, including Messenger, some AR and VR products, and a couple more. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you. How are you, George? I am doing great. I can't complain. There's a lot of craziness <laughs> going on. Well, I guess we could have said that <laughs> for the last uh, <laughs> two years. So, you know, I laugh, but how crazy has it been yes. for humanity? Why don't you yeah. take a quick second to, you know, introduce yourself, tell the folks out there a little bit about your career background and how you got to being a PM at Facebook today. Sure. Uh, so very quickly, as George mentioned, I'm a PM at Facebook and yes, I've worked on a variety of products. And one theme that runs through most of them is that I have a background in machine learning and, and artificial intelligence. So that's where my interest lies, is really blue sky ideas on how do we bring AI and ML enabled products to life. Um, prior to that, I worked at different startups that also specialize um, or at least enable use machine learning as part of its core product offering and such as products like Chorus.ai and then Tutango, which is a big customer success tool. Um, and before that, I had my own startup. So that's what really got me into product management is just building my own thing and learning it the hard way. I hear you, the school of uh, hard knocks, as they say. You yes. know, in your opinion, what is product-led growth? I've been saying product-led revenue uh, just because I feel like it encompasses so much right now. Right. What is it and why is it so popular right now? Because it's not new. No, it's not. <laughs> it's not new. Um, so uh, I'll skip the textbook definition because I'm sure a lot of folks can just Google that and come to some kind of high level conclusion, which is like, okay, well, it's basic. Like if users, whether they be your end users um, in a business context or they're your consumers who are using your products, that growth will be reflected in your revenue and also in guiding your product direction and hence what people call product-led growth. And why is it so popular now? I think a lot of it is actually driven by the fast iterations of technology. Um, see, if you kind of like just dial the clock back about, I would say 20 years, I know it's been a while, but in the 2000s when Salesforce really kicked off like this idea of software as a service, it really isn't new per se, but it was disruptive enough where what it did is saying like, hey, we're gonna get software like instead of to your door, we're just gonna get it on your computer. And the deployment is so fast. And at that time, we still practice things like waterfall rather than agile. And roughly 10 years 
months ago, there was a huge shift into agile where it's like, don't just build this gigantic product with endless workflows and then ship it. Instead, take learnings every step of the way to understand what people are doing and then improve the product. And what you have is instead of what they call, like, I think it's like death by a thousand cuts, it's more like you win by not getting cut by a thousand, like, you know, cuts. <laughs> so that's really why I think it's so big now is just because of how quickly we can deploy new technologies and learn from our users. Well, let me ask you, how do you know if your product or your funnel should feature product-led experiences like a free trial or the freemium model or self-guided product tours? How do you know when, you know, you should, you should implement it or, or perhaps not? Oh, that is a tough one because, well, two parts. Um, if we're talking about B2B, um, it's very different than B2C. Typically with B2C, the winning strategy is a platform play. So companies like Facebook or Google or Apple, they have invested heavily into platform in the last decade. So it's really very much of a freemium model or just free, <laughs> or just free like Facebook and other companies. Um, but if it's B2B, then it's not, you can't really just say like, all right, we're just gonna give it away for free. And maybe if you know our customers are successful in their business, we will go ahead and charge more. The reason why that's also a challenge is you're not the only tool that can help customers be successful. That's the challenge. Um, and, and I think it's, it's a little bit too hopeful to say, well, maybe if they use our product for a while and they end up growing their team size, we're gonna convert them. Instead, I would actually focus on what is the winning experience in your product? And is that something you should lock behind a glass door? That's the biggest question is every product out there, it should do something, one particular thing, what I consider a competitive edge. Um, like when I worked for different companies with an AI background, usually that is one of the core offerings. And that is something you can lock behind a glass door and at the same time showcase. So I would say that's really the question to ask, like, what is your product trying to do? And ultimately, what is the kind of outcome you want your customers to realistically achieve and to what extent do you want to start charging versus letting them have it for free now how much of that is sort of qualitative in versus quantitative how do you how much do you mm. know to give away like that free trial or that v1 or that plan one i should say that is free how do you know like what what that should encompass. Cause you know, one of the things that I've seen with, you know, the sort of like long tail models or the freemium is that it's not as easy as people think, you know, you, you give away a free tier and then you are trying to also sell up market and particularly mid market enterprise. And then you start to sort of cannibalize the uh, one or mm -hmm. the other. Right. And so you'll, it's, it's, there's no worse feeling to uh, as a salesperson than to like call up Pepsi or Oracle. And they're like, Oh, you know, we're using your tool and you know, we're happy paying 10 bucks a month. You know what I mean? So how do you figure that out? Mm. Or we're using I, your free, free version. Right. I'm personally not a fan of free versions of products. Um, and 
is, is not because I'm a PM and I love product and I believe we should pay for it. That's not the reason why I say that. The reason why I say that is more about what is really the end game of the product. And I think that is so important to answer as, as like, a, like in the path as a business owner and now as a PM, I always think about it. It's like, what is the end game? And here's what I mean. Products that should offer freemium is products like Dropbox. It's, it's products because eventually the users will have more things to store. You know, you know what the path forward looks like. It's not so much more features. It's more so about like you provide an infrastructure and you're just scaling it. So that's one example. Another one is what I would consider like Slack. Slack offer a freemium for a long time. And ultimately their end game, their exit strategy was going public and getting acquired by Salesforce. But what they're not telling you is the platform play. See, Slack truly has a lot of value for, for its own customers when it's deeply embedded in the Salesforce community and when people are using everything together. So if we're building a product with the end game is, hey, we believe, let's say hypothetically, we are working on a product that we believe will shorten the discovery process in the sales cycle. It's very mm. specific because we know that, let's um, just say we know because like people don't like talking to salespeople and we want our salespeople to really learn and take their time to understand customer needs. So when it's time to sell, rather than spending their time on doing discovery and just walking through like basic product specs and which honestly, at some point, a bunch of products kind of look the same and your paradox of choice. It's more about understanding the business. So let's say you go build a product for solving the discoverability bits. Okay, cool. Well, you can't be offering for free because then you will just end up finding yourself constantly building new features because that's your end game. Your end game is trying to fundamentally change how people work. And that's not something you should offer for free. And it's not a platform play, it's a true product play. And it's truly about driving business outcomes. So to that, I would say it's quantitative. It's both a qualitative business strategy evaluation followed by quantitative, which is like, all right, given that's the case, how do we go and actually convert these customers and really think about how are we adding value to their business? And to that, I would actually recommend a really good book. Sorry, I'll pause there. Yeah, well, tell us about the book. Oh, yes. Um, I highly recommend um, a book called Value uh, as a Service, <laughs> uh, the, next, the Next Disruption. Uh, I am a little always aware saying the word disruptions. But I mean, jokes aside, it's written by the founder and CEO of Coupa Software. And I love that book, in particular in SaaS context, because it's always about proving out value. It's, mm -hmm. it's, not, it's not a question of should certain team size pay or not. It's about the value exchange that you're getting. Awesome. Now, if I'm a leader out there and I am trying to uh, specifically a product marketer or marketing leader out there and I'm trying to deploy a product-led growth strategy, what uh, roadblocks or issues would you give sort of them a heads up around uh, that, uh, that they might run into and what could they do to sort of avoid them? Mm, the first one is really about understanding the product. And that is hard. Um, oftentimes when we join a company, whether as a marketing professional or a product professional, there's so much history that already probably went into the product. 
unless you're really there from day one, then that's different. Then you have not yet reached product market fit. But assuming you have reached some kind of product market fit, then you really have to work closely with the product team to dissect the product, to understand its many iterations of growth up to that point, because that will give you many insights into understanding potential pitfalls, like, for example, what verticals to maybe not pursue. Um, product teams, they spend a lot of time understanding this. And as of marketing professionals when they come in, particularly into a new product, and they say, oh, wow, I have all these great ideas. We should totally go and use this product. But let's say specifically for like, you know, folks who are working in SMBs who have like Shopify accounts or whatever, and we're going to go and land our product there. Most likely the product team had thought about this and might have pursued it and might have done user research on it. And maybe nothing much turned out from that. So I would definitely say, try not to reinvent the wheel, even if a product oftentimes looks pretty innocuous. Awesome. Thank you for that. That was fantastic. What behavior or data's, uh, data, I was going to say data set, <laughs> data is data, um, should we be tracking within a product-led growth experience? Well, if there's clearly a conversion between growth and usage with conversion of the business, whether it's renewing contracts or even getting them and converting them, then I would say align yourselves with the product team. Product teams themselves have key product metrics. And if they're growth, they're usually your kind of vanilla ones. <laughs> like they are your daily active, your monthly active, your weekly active, and understanding how to resurrect users like users that have just kind of ghosted the products, like why do they come back? What brought them back? Is it a marketing effort? And if it is, is there a funnel? It's like, which there's tons, the reality is there are a ton of funnels and that's the challenge is because there are a ton of funnels. And that's why everyone tends to lean in to these top line metrics. However, despite the usage metrics alone, it's important that every product team has a, what we call like, some kind of meaningful North Star metrics. And a great example I can give you is actually YouTube. <laughs> so YouTube is not often a product we think about, but I love referencing YouTube when I talk about North Star metrics that I think even marketing teams should understand, which in this case is just meaningful watch time. And that sounds trivial, but to go back a few years ago, before YouTube had this realization, they were not actually pushing our, like their algorithm was not pushing videos that had more than 10 minutes. But now YouTube realized that, hey, in order for users to have a more satisfying experience, we should offer, or at least we should encourage creators to offer videos with more than 10 minutes of watch time. Because to them, that's what they consider to be meaningful. And in turn, advertisers are able to actually show more ads. And in a way that's, that's not uh, they can show it instead of just in the beginning or at the end, they can put it in at the five minute mark or at the three and a half minute mark. And that is something where I see marketing and product should come together to really understand that meaningful North Star metric. Awesome. Thank you so much. So drum roll here. What's one tip that you would give a marketing leader around successfully deploying a product-led growth strategy right now, like something that they can do tomorrow? Something they can do tomorrow. 
I would say definitely don't over index <laughs> on things like changing colors um, because I think consumers and end users or people like at Facebook, we call our users just people because that's who they are. Um, don't over index on things like, oh, if I change a color, it's going to drive conversion, but rather it's really about understanding when people are coming to your products and what are the other factors? Like, for example, are they coming in because of the fact that we're creating content or maybe because our partners or we're doing a lot of partnership or partners are creating content. So really understand that top of the funnel and the motivation and intentions of the users and collect it. <laughs> That's the biggest thing that people are not doing. See, the moment people land on your product, ask them. Like, I mean, I like you can, it can be a pop-up, it can be a follow-up email, but ask the ask your leads like, why did you come into like our products? And it's not just about the source, it's really about the intentions. Awesome. Mona, thank you so much. This was absolutely mm -hmm. fantastic. If people want to follow your content or maybe follow you on social media, what are the best channels to reach you? Uh, LinkedIn, uh, that's the best. Uh, I try to keep my social media profiles private. I know it's so funny as someone who works at Facebook saying this, but uh, I love LinkedIn. <laughs> I get it. I get it. I sort of just defaulted to having my social channels be business and then DMs uh, will be more personal, but awesome. Well, have a wonderful day and hope to see you soon. Thank you so much, George. This is really fun. Thank you.